Paul Petro Contemporary Art is pleased to present Exordium, a survey of works by Natalie Wood, a Trinidadian Toronto-based artist who touches on popular culture, education, and historical research. Wood writes, quote, I have been struggling with the experience of living while Black and queer and female. I have looked for answers to learning how to live, to survive, and to do better. I have researched ancestral histories, black futures, looked for counter-narratives in popular culture and tried to find myself in places where maybe I can learn how to live, finally and integrally, safely and bravely. Natalie Wood is on view until April 24th at Toronto's Paul Petro Contemporary. Visit paulpetro.com to learn more. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden. And Lauren Wetmore. So Lauren, your interview this week, in fact, happened last year. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us how that came to be. <laughs> yes, yes. Time, time folds in on itself. It does indeed. So this was recorded, this interview with Alexandra Stock was recorded in November 2020. I was getting ready to start a new job and uh, move out of my studio. So we wanted to get, you know, some interviews in the can um, in anticipation of that. But I ended up recording this in my studio after I had moved all of my furniture out. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially just like a cement cube. <laughs> and apparently that's not great for sound. <laughs> you do have to learn these things the hard way. <laughs> Which is to say, apologies, there's a bit of echoing um, there that our, our editor, Jacob Irish, has been valiantly fighting with. The funny thing is that Alexandra is recording this interview from Cairo, which, you know, is considered one of the world's noisiest cities. Mm. And actually, we recorded it during the call to prayer, which is also very, very loud in Cairo. And her sound is perfect. There's, <laughs> there's no issues at all. <laughs> To be honest, I was kind of hoping we'd get a little bit of call to prayer in the background, but no, instead we just get the echoing emptiness of my uh, consciousness of, of, my, <laughs> of my life. <laughs> Tell us a bit about Alexandra and how you've come to know her. Of course. So Alexandra is a Swiss and American curator, writer and consultant. Um, she's based mainly in Cairo, where we met. She's been there since 2007. And she has held many curatorial and managerial positions, including uh, at the Townhouse Gallery in Cairo, which is a very um, kind of storied institution that she talks a little bit about the closure of it at the beginning of this interview. Uh, but she also represented the Middle East region on the International Council Advisory Board for the PBS program Art in the 21st Century. Mm -hmm. And she's currently creative director of Archinos, which is an architecture, design, and conservation firm in Cairo. And then also, she's working on a diploma in cultural diplomacy at SOAS University of London. So there's a lot going on there. She's, mm. she's a very ambitious lady. But she also manages, as you can see in this article, to be uh, a human. <laughs> Very much with emotions so. that she bravely expresses. 
The article that she's reading to us from and that we discuss is called The Privileged Violence Stunt, that is the Venice Biennial Boat Project, which was published in Matamas on 29th of May 2019. Isn't it so strange that that is the most recent Venice Biennale? Yeah, it's coming to us from a past that is also kind of weirdly the present, or this like continued present. Yeah. Yeah, so the subject of the article is Christoph Buchel's piece in the 58th Venice Biennial, which was called, the biennial was called May You Live in Interesting Times. It was curated by Ralph Rugoff in 2019. Um, and although, as we say, this work is coming to us from, from a past of almost two years ago, there have been some kind of recent rumblings uh, in the press lately about this same work that Alexandra discusses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the criticism of it seems to stay at the top of mind over these two years. I mean, and I think also it would be the the first piece anybody would remember from that biennial. Yeah, and I think actually that's a really important point that is interesting to make in retrospect. Because as we'll get into in the interview, even though we now understand this work to be grotesque and we can all say publicly that it is, I think there was a moment when there wasn't a lot of public criticism of this work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's real low-hanging fruit. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a turd of a work. Not to, not to, you know, be too colloquial about it, but, um, like maybe to give some, I want Alexandra to get into the finer points of the work as she does in her piece, but suffice it to say, uh, her titular description of privileged and violent stunt is entirely accurate. Uh, so in its essence, the work is comprised of a fishing ship that sunk while transporting refugees from Libya to Italy in 2015. Upwards of a thousand people were killed. Um, and Buchal dry docked this boat on the Arsenale without any kind of contextualization at a combined expense of tens of millions of euros, uh, ostensibly, you know, to raise awareness of the ongoing crisis of forced migration. But the work was presented without any kind of contextualizing information and, you know, a grotesque bill. And I love her observation that it essentially traps anyone standing in its proximity yes. into a kind of like cynic's yes. posture. You know, it's like this work is just bad faith all the way down. You know, like it's uh, bad faith with regards to the people who suffered in this horrible tragedy and bad faith in terms of the people that it is purporting to enlighten. But it's now kind of turned into this saga of recriminations. So in December, there was a report by the art newspaper in which it was made clear that Buchal and his gallery, Hauser and Worth, had not fulfilled their commitment to return the boat to Sicily, where it was meant to be transformed into a memorial garden. And the article details how everybody around it is just sort of throwing their hands up, like they had nothing to do with it in the first place. You know, the biennial the curator, the gallery, everybody is saying, we agreed that we wouldn't pay for it. We wish that the artist would do something. 
contact the project manager who gets a bounce back email. You know, everybody is trying to kind of divest themselves from responsibility for this object that remains there. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how that loops back into a kind of missing criticism, because we know um, collectively that this is a bad work. You didn't have to have more than a few conversations with friends who attended, say, for it to come up and for mm -hmm. the kind of stain of this to be shared. But at the same time, it was never, at least Alexandra Stock's piece really indicates there wasn't enough committed to the page or, or to mm -hmm. history, really, around this appalling work. Yeah. And I think that, like I was saying, there's the argument that that is the case because it's low hanging fruit. And, you know, it's just it's almost too obvious to criticize an artwork like this because it is just so obviously gross. Um, but I think on the other hand, saying that would obfuscate the ways that in general with big budget projects by big artists supported by big galleries, it's not possible to criticize a work that is too big to fail. Too big to fail, too cynical to be analyzed. I mean, that's the other problem, yeah. too, is it's so tidy, basically, in its comment, you know. Yeah. It's basically, it's like, a, it's like Jeff Koons or something, like, resists criticism. <laughs> it's self-contained, it's self-employing. There is no um, subtext. Like, this is all text. <laughs> and it's poorly written. <laughs> Alexandra's article, I think, meets it at a certain place of being text. She's wonderfully plain spoken. And mm -hmm. the text had a really, really large reach. Um, mm -hmm. And it resulted in some professional repercussions for her as a result of her plain spokenness. Um, so we discuss that in the framework of allyship and publication and how power can get behind, but also get in the way of critical discussions, mm. um, which is kind of particularly relevant to her position of working in contemporary art in Egypt with all of its political and personal implications. But yeah, that's actually how we start our conversation is talking about uh, what at the time was going on with her and the art scene in Cairo. Mm. There are some points in this text where I want like hand clapping emojis, you know, like, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> And I think that one of those places that, that really, really hit me was about the cynicism of this work and that there is the harm that it did perpetrate as part of the exhibition, that it continues to perpetrate as a part of not being, you know, essentially repatriated along the contractual agreement. There is also this sort of larger and longer lasting harm that it can have, which she brings so perfectly into this line of saying that the implication of this work is that being detached from life by even one degree is part of the package deal of being in the arts. Like I see at the final thrust of the piece, her basically pulling us back from a kind of cynicism that the work wants to pin us into and, yes. and full-throatedly coming to the defense of those who she works along, alongside of as not detached, not blasé at all. Um, and I think there's something, you know, it's so rare that such an easy bit of weaponry can then be made into a finer instrument. Okay, I can't wait to hear, I know we say this every time, but it's always so deeply felt by, by the end of our intros, I'm, I'm just so jacked. Here is Lauren Webmore. <laughs> 
Alexandra Stock. Alexandra Stock discussing her article, The Privileged Violent Stunt That Is the Venice Biennale Boat Project, published by Madamas on May 29th, 2019. How are things in Cairo? What's what's going on? Um, things are tense because we're also nearing the uh, 10th anniversary of the whatever you want to call it revolution, and you can kind of feel that things are picking up a little bit. There's uh, there's been a few things happening downtown that um, get swept under the rug really quickly, and mm. I think that COVID has also come at a really interesting time because. Uh, I think the powers that be have been using a lot of these um, restrictions. There was a lot of overlap and in interests in terms of, you know, you know, uh, regulating society, regulating opening hours, and uh, a lot of the public sphere and restricting certain things. And it's coming at a pretty opportune time, I think, for um, the anniversary. So I think it's you can feel that it's you know people are tense, people are. It's, it's not an easy time for anyone in the world in general, but I think that mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people here have been hit really hard by this. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. if, you, if you lose your job, you lose everything. You, you know, you, there's no social system as such to kind of prop you up. And I, I know that's the case in a lot of other parts of the world, but I, you can really feel how immediate that is here. It's a tough time. And, you know, also in terms of the arts, it's also kind of, uh, I mean, maybe this is something we can talk about a bit, bit later, but... There's also been some very weird kind of, you know, attempts at scavenging and kind of like unethical practices, in my opinion, hmm. kind of happening in this vacuum. And it's uh, it's a weird time. <laughs> it's definitely a very weird time at the moment. So I'm interested in hearing more about what's happening with the arts. What do you mean by scavenging? Well, I mean, a lot of art spaces have been either closing like in this in the case of the townhouse gallery or have been mm -hmm. kind of um you know hit with other kind of difficulties and had to downscale a lot of their um programming for a number of different reasons and it's we're kind of reduced to you know the absolute minimum and so if you have people that have money to spare basically they they can kind of swoop in and Mm. kind of control a lot more than they would have been able to had there been, you know, the same kind of scene that we had, you know, just a couple of years ago, even. Right. You can really feel that there's a vacuum there and that people are taking advantage of it to a certain extent. And, um, you know, individual artists who are coming in from abroad who just are taking advantage of um, local practitioners or local craftsmen, for example. And then I see. you also have institutions or you know new institutions that are popping up and that you know kind of they make things a little bit difficult for artists who still want to be able to show something um because there's not a lot of opportunities at the moment and they they make basically kind of unethical proposals in my opinion uh mm. and you know, they, they're also teaming. It's very, I'm kind of beating around the bush because I'm a little bit apprehensive about what I can't afford to, you know, go public with, you know, it's, yeah, it's very tricky because, you know, there's, there's some very powerful people that are tied up in some of these things. And 
It's yes. the first time that I've ever been a little bit afraid of being as vocal as I'd like to be. And that's never really happened before. But this time I'm genuinely a little bit scared. Hmm. It's interesting, though, because we're about to talk about a text where you were extremely vocal about something that uh, you disagreed with or you felt was wrong. Um, and so to start that conversation by talking about feeling like you're you're a bit reticent to speak about what's going on now is, is sort of an interesting dichotomy. I agree. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's you know, I, I reread this text the one that we're about to talk about a couple times, um, and I hadn't actually revisited it in the, the last year and a half. Mm. Um, I it was too emotional for me to kind of uh, you know dwell on it too long. It wasn't. It was. It felt like something that was right at the time, and rereading it now a year and a half later did kind of remind me of a time that felt so immediate but also so far away at the same time. Right. And it's only, uh, you know, only a year or so away. Yeah. Maybe we could jump into the reading now and sure. then pick up that conversation again. Sure, sure, absolutely. Artist Christoph Büchel's project Barca Nostra brought the hull of a fishing boat that sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea in 2015 to one of the two main venues of this year's Venice Biennial, which opened on May 11th and runs until November 24th. The work, however, which is the retrieved, propped-up, rusty boat itself, quickly attracted extensive media coverage beyond the culture sphere, simply because it's provocative, and that it links itself to death and money and a lot of each. The work's use of one of the art world's most prestigious events as a backdrop only amplifies the drama. Buchel's work is part of the arguably very loosely curated main exhibition of the biennial, titled May You Live in Interesting Times. The boat's carcass is now on land, on the waterfront of the so-called Arsenale, where the city's shipyards and armories once stood, as the epicenter of Venice's incredible wealth and Europe's largest industrial complex until the Industrial Revolution. The site has kept its manicured flair, and its waterways are still very much in use, so Buchel's Barca Nostra, meaning our boat, isn't easily read as part of the biennial's temporary exhibition. The work hides in plain sight and is installed in a rest area at a halfway point in the large grounds. A gash in the boat's port side faces a coffee and snack bar, an outdoor seating area, as well as the biennial's press room, a rare Wi-Fi point, and a cluster of portable toilets. The hull blocks the direct view of the canal and is close enough to almost cast a shadow on the people taking a pit stop to recharge. I didn't realize the wreckage was part of the main exhibition until I ran into a friend who pointed over my shoulder as we were standing in the rain and asked if I had noticed the boat by the Swiss Icelandic artist who made that controversial mosque a few years ago. That was a quote. In 2015, Buchel represented Iceland in the biennial with a project that was axed after two weeks. He turned a deconsecrated Catholic church in Venice's Canareccio neighborhood into a mosque a project he called The Mosque. I heard some positively ridiculous figures regarding the cost of Buchel's 2019 project over the first few days of this year's biennial. First, the number was 2 million euros. Then I heard the obscene amount of 23 million euros thrown around with ease. 
It turns out it was actually 33 million euros, the same 23 million from earlier, with another 9.5 million euros tacked on for the original salvaging of the boat by the Italian Navy. An astronomical sum any way you frame it, even if you don't know where the cost for the restoration and identification end and the artwork begins. But it's more than just money. There's also a very real human tragedy at the heart of the situation. The structure that sunk was a Tunisian fishing boat originally built to be operated by 15 people. But on April 18th, 2015, the vessel left Libya for Lampedusa and went down in the Strait of Sicily after a tragic collusion with a Portuguese freighter that was originally coming to the fishing boat's rescue. Some reports say between 700 to 1,100 refugees drowned that night, while others pin the number of deaths more narrowly at 800. It was, quote, the largest loss of life at sea in the recent history of the Mediterranean, unquote. Only 28 people survived. It's difficult to imagine 100 people on the boat, let alone 11 times as many. It was in 2016 that the Italian Navy retrieved the wreck and brought it to Sicily in order to identify the human bodies that were still inside the metal structure. Writing about Buchel's project goes against my better judgment. Four friends asked independently of each other to please not give it more attention than it's already received, but this fucking boat project made me both sad and mad, and I have to push back at what Buchel is doing, even if that means feeding the publicity. Actually, especially in light of the tame acceptance it has received in the press. A friend who works as a curator in Amsterdam suggested that the work is a much-needed one-liner in a sea of art in the biennial that demands a lot of time and attention, but even she drew a line at a price tag of 2 million euros. The thing is, being able to turn the deaths of hundreds of migrants into a one-liner isn't a sophisticated intellectual feat. It's just white privilege, with or without an art context. In no uncertain terms, and not cloaked in neutral art speak, I find Christoph Buchel's Barca Nostra vulgar and terrifyingly violent. I am repelled by the artist's obliviousness, regardless if it's performed or not, to his privileged, and by the curators and organizers who enabled him, but also by the damage the work has already done and might continue to do when it comes to feeding into the idea that being detached from life by one degree is part of the package deal of being in the arts. Even an art context cannot swallow this one whole. The press release tells us the work should be seen as, quote, a relic of a human tragedy, but also a monument to contemporary migration, engaging real and symbolic borders in the impossibility of freedom of movement of information and people that underlines our mutual responsibility representing the collective policies and politics that create such wrecks, unquote. And some people are echoing this emptiness in praise and defense of the project as if it makes any sense. I, however, am repelled at how the artist has created a, well, vessel that is capable of neutralizing any and all criticism directed at it, an artwork of the era of fake news. But I still insist on trying to critique it. Call me cynical, but I don't think this project is genuine. This artwork isn't about the boat or the people who died in and on it. All I can see is Buchel daring his audience to watch as he strips these dead people of their humanity a second time and spends 33 million euros while doing it. It's a slippery slope to argue that money spent on arts and culture could be used elsewhere, and please don't mistake this following information for an attempt at making that point.
But while the press release says the project, quote, opens up the possibility of actively using Barca Nostra as a vehicle of significant socio-political, ethical, and historical importance, unquote, Let's check in with an entity doing this in the present and not creating a monument for a forced past tense. According to a friend of mine who's a healthcare professional in an institution working with refugees, a budget of this size could fund two clinics, one for pediatric and post and prenatal care, including family planning and vaccinations, and one for mental health care for victims of torture and sexual violence, including free medication, for about 10 years. Barca Nostra is a performance. It's watching a middle-aged European man metaphorically drape himself in the violent deaths of migrants whom he doesn't bother to name, and then, as a second act, attempt to pin some form of vague guilt on his audience. I hate how Buchel tries to implicate visitors to the biennial in this mess, framing the people strolling past the shipwreck as if they're as unaffected by what happened in and on this chunk of metal as they appear. He himself stripped the work of any context. There are no signs, no labels, no text anywhere. We're not given anywhere near enough information to engage or contemplate or act or form an independent thought around this work that doesn't involve the artist himself. It's already made all right, but all roads lead back to the artist. I don't think the project proves anything beyond how simplistically Buchel himself, not to mention his curator who made this project possible, views the world. The optics are bad because Buchel set it up that way. Anyone who's in a photograph or video footage sipping Prosecco or Espresso under the Venetian sun or just wandering around with this boat in the background looks like some insensitive, cliched art asshole. The visitors to the biennial aren't crass for ignoring a boat that brought death to hundreds of people because we're all simply being set up to fail. It's a trap for anyone who goes near the work. The truth is people care. People read the news, people dedicate their whole careers and lives to the issues that he's just name-checking. Christoph Buchel doesn't know shit. What gives him the right to gild this horrifying tragedy and put his name on it? And the gal, it's not our boat. It's Barca Buchel. The thing is, I don't see the art world as detached and blasé at all. I think people in this line of work run on emotions and wonder and on intellectual and creative pursuits. There's often a much bigger picture in the background, a collective dialogue with the past, present, and future, jumping across disciplines and schools of thought. These people, many of them who I know at least, care about things very deeply. If the art world is becoming increasingly cynical and detached, then maybe it's not a structural issue. It could also have to do with its self-conditioning, which dictates that it absorb anything that's put in its framework, even the most cynical and detached artworks. Stunting narcissists will stunt a narcissist, so I'm not expecting more or anything else from Christoph Buchel. But I am disappointed that there isn't more backlash or even critical writing around this work, and that writers have instead resorted to parroting lines from the press release or dropping the dreaded raising awareness or highlighting the contrast of the shipwreck to the mega yachts docked nearby outside Venice's Giardini. Then again, maybe the lack of in-depth reporting on this 33 million euro project is simply because more people were smarter than I and chose to not give the work, meaning the artist, the attention it so craves. Ugh, that's so good. There are so many points in that that I am 
you know, disgusted by what I'm hearing and also wanting to be like, yes, to what you're saying. I mean, I think one of the things that really draws me to this piece, you say, I am not cloaking this in a neutral art speak. Um, and I found that very, very refreshing. I think I, this piece was first brought to my attention by Francis McKee when we were doing an interview for this podcast and kind of bemoaning the state of criticism. And I asked him, like, well, is there anything, what are you reading? Is there anything you think is important? And he kind of said no, uh, you know, that it wasn't, that there wasn't anything that was really sparking him. And then he thought for a second and said, no, actually, there's this piece I just read this morning. And it really, you know, it meant something to him. But I can also imagine, as you were saying before, before you were reading, um, that it was probably quite a difficult process to write and to have published and to deal with after the publication. You were saying maybe it was like a too emotional, it was too emotional to revisit it? Well, I mean, I think there's there's several things that um, I may want to mention in terms of, of, of that specifically. It was actually really easy to write, and it was really easy <laughs> to get published. I wrote this actually, most of it in transit while I was waiting for my flight in Rome, it came, it came out of a conversation with Lina Atala, who's the uh, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Madamas, who published the article. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in touch over, over um, the course of my time at the, at the Biennial. It was her idea. It was originally her idea to, mm. to write about this. And I, I thought about it so much. I had to give it a lot of thought. And I was so emotionally charged from it. Once I actually sat down and I had a moment to kind of sort my thoughts out, it was uh, it was a very easy thing to do. You know, when I said it was too emotional to revisit it, I it didn't really come from the piece itself. It came more from the attention that it that it got and uh, the minor. I don't know if you would call it backlash, but I mean, it's there's been I think some certain reactions that were pretty significant to me, but hmm. it's you know I didn't have any lingering emotions for this work. I feel like I had a moment and an opportunity to get everything down that I wanted to say. The thing that really um, struck me when I saw this work in the press was exactly what you say, this tame acceptance it's received in the press, as if, you know, anybody could be anything other than disgusted by it. Um, But it's interesting to hear that your writing about it did not have a tame reception. Maybe you could tell me a little bit more about your experience of the reception of the piece. It had a lot of support. I mean, it was there were a couple key people that publicly shared it on social mm-hmm. media, and I think that them doing that had a, you know had a significant impact on it being accepted in a in a larger kind of context. Uh, mm-hmm. There was Charles Esche, and there was also um, Annie Fletcher, who were the first people to share it and to publicly say, you know, this is something that people need to read. And, you know, I think that there were different kinds of voices. You know, there were a lot of people saying, yeah, this is, this is great. There's a, there were a few people that were saying, you know, you're stating the absolute obvious, and that's why it's getting a lot of attention. And mm. which is fair, which is absolutely fair. And um, I think the the backlash, if you will, kind of came in much more sneaky and more subtle ways. And mm. that didn't happen until a little bit further down the line. Um, but it's 
no, it was it was received in a really warm way, but I think it was it needed those kind of powerful allies, if you will, that kind of uh, shared it first. Because I think that just putting it out there is one thing, but if there's a few key people that can stand by it, that that does, of course, make a huge difference. That's really interesting. I hadn't considered the importance. Um of sharing the importance of having it essentially having a piece of art writing vetted, um, or brought forward by a committee, um, in social media, what do you think would have happened had that not happened? I think it probably would have just remained, uh, more of a kind of a local discussion Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I think it just wouldn't have traveled as far. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think, yeah, it just wouldn't have had the same kind of reach, but it it still would have circulated a bit, I assume, because, uh, you know, it touches on a couple issues that are, I think that are pretty sensitive to, uh, you know, the regional issues, you know, the Mm -hmm. lack of funds from the lack of funds to, you know, forced migration to, you know, all these things that these are key issues that, of course, have significance beyond the art world. So I think that there's a couple elements there that might have been picked up for other reasons, but it just wouldn't have circulated in the same way. Do you want to talk about uh, the backlash that happened afterwards? Well, this is the thing. Because it was so subtle, I'm not, I'm, I don't even really know if this is actually real or not. But, right. somebody... but isn't that just the way it always works in the art world? You're like, is this person being rude because they are rude? Or because they're like working something out on. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you I'll tell you what it was. It's I was back home in Zurich uh, at a at a bar with my brother, and I was catching up with him. And then I had a rare extroverted moment, and I posted to social media that I was at this bar. Uh, if anyone wanted to join us, this buddy of mine, Matteo, he's a Swiss Colombian curator, also based in Zurich. He happened to be right around the corner, and so he popped in. And then this was only a few months after uh, the article had been published, and then so he brought it up actually. And then we started. I don't remember exactly how we got talking about this, but I mentioned that I had gotten a rejection letter from uh, a grant from a research grant that I applied for uh, had applied for and I thought it was mm. kind of a slam dunk I thought that this was mm. you know, definitely going to happen and I got this weirdly personal like unnecessarily personal and sharp kind of um rejection that I was that was so puzzling and then so Oof. in the context of talking about this article and mentioning this uh rejection letter that I'd gotten he Matteo looked to me and he said, do you not see what just happened? Do you not see what this is? Because the people who rejected you are also funders of this project. Oh. So it was, you know, and I didn't, it hadn't fully clicked in my mind until that point. And I was like, yeah, I think I know, I know what you mean. So stupid me. Wow. And then, so that was, that was the thing. And I, you know, I've been pretty persistent and kind of, you know, uh, trying to engage with this, uh, this funding institution in the meantime, you know, just trying to not take it personally and ignore it. But it's, I, I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> by now I'm pretty sure that that was, um, that was the most significant kind of, um, backlash that, that has happened. And, you know, when, when Charles Escher originally shared the, the article on Facebook, uh, he originally said that he hoped that there wouldn't be any backlash from the commercial mm. art world. 
And I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that he mentioned the commercial art world because that's not necessarily like a, a realm that I, you know, work in. But yeah, I think there were certain repercussions in that sense. I, I, I don't think that that's, uh, that I'm just uh, hearing things and seeing things. I think that's pretty real. And, you know, it's, it is what it is. I mean, I, I would do it all over again. It's, you know, that's yeah. just, <laughs> but still yeah. it was, I know it, it kind of got me thinking that was, uh, you know, when we, the three of us, my brother and Matteo and I were sitting at that bar, we were, I, I just kind of, I just couldn't really talk for a few minutes. I just had to kind of go back over all these things and think about it for a of moment. Course. And I thought, you know, that, that probably happened. All right. So, okay. Yeah. It's hard to have something like that happen and maybe have a feeling of not being surprised, but also being deeply shocked. Yeah. And it's, uh, it was a weird, it was a weird moment. I mean, it wasn't, yeah, like you just said, it wasn't unexpected, but it was still, I thought it was very petty. I thought it was super petty and I thought it was very unprofessional and very unnecessary. And, absolutely. um, and I think that, you know, an institution you know, also a funding institute, anybody who actually, you know, works in this field should be open to criticism, like constructive criticism to a point. Sure. That action is completely antithetical to any kind of higher thought about how culture operates. And one could imagine that a funding institution would be, uh, you know, devoted to... I mean, this is something that I that I really I wanted to talk to you about before, but now that you've shared this, it, it makes it even kind of more pointed. Um, which is that you, as I understand it, are a curator, um, but you also write art criticism, um, and I have also done that, and I know that it is a very very tricky thing to be kind of professionally occupied as a curator, but also act as an art critic. I know a lot of curators don't do it, um, probably because of the situation that you've just described. And I wonder, yeah, I wonder if, um, if that's something you would ever talked about or thought about beforehand or how you see, um, do you think that it's important for curators to operate also as art critics? It's really hard for me to generalize that yeah. because, um, and I know that you're not at really asking me to, but I, I, the thing is the, I can only really say why I choose to do the things that I do. And of it course. actually has, it has a lot to do with the fact of, um, where I am and where I've hmm. chosen to, uh, to work from and, you know, working in, in Cairo has, you, you can't really just choose one thing. You have to be a bit of everything because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the whole scene is very, um, it's stretched very thin. There's a, there's a lack of everything. And so you do, if you want to engage, you tend to engage on multiple different levels and in different ways. And so for me, it was a very natural thing to do that I didn't really think too much about initially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of a, it comes from a, a mode of trying to be just generous to whatever is happening and engage with things that are happening on every level that you can, uh, at the best capacity that you can. And so sometimes this is meant, um, you know, writing about a project that's happening in town or something that's like in this case that, um, 
originally was supposed to be about, you know, the, like I said earlier, the um, uh, Egyptian contribution to the biennial, and that kind of, you know, spiraled off from there. So it's, I can't really kind of pull these two things apart from myself. Um, right. But I also think that people in general are way too cautious in mm. this field. And that really kind of annoys me a little bit. It makes me very mm. impatient. And mm. I think that it's a lot, there's a lot of missed opportunities because people are very um, protective of a certain image or they're very protective of a certain kind of um, the parameters of a job title. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me seems very, very unnatural. And I feel like if I, if I, the thing is, I also have the luxury of being able to write about things. Mm-hmm. I do have an outlet that is very welcoming to anything that I would like to publish. And I realize that that's also an extreme privilege to have that not everybody does have. So I am able to kind of dip in and out of these different kind of um, modes of engaging with the arts. I can write, I can curate. And, you know, perhaps there are people that would like to do this too, but just can't for whatever reason. So it's, it also comes from a position of privilege in a certain sense that Hmm. I am allowed to do these things and I, I have the platforms to do them if I so choose. So, Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of downsides to the, you know, being based where I am, but I think this is one of the advantages as well. Yeah. So by the platform, are you talking about Madamas? Yes. It would be great to hear from you, um, maybe to introduce our listeners to the publication. And, and if you want to talk a little bit about about more writing you've done with them or just kind of position it uh, as a publication in the discourse. It's hard to do them justice. Uh, <laughs> it's a very, it's very hard to do them justice. Uh, they, if you've never heard of Madamas, they, I, I can't even sum it up in one sentence. They, it's basically, um, they're, they're an independent platform that publishes um, very high quality, very um, uh, critical uh, takes on anything uh, from politics to world affairs to regional affairs, in this case, uh, also cultural affairs. And um, they're, uh, one of their founding members and editor, the editor-in-chief, Lina Tala, is uh, truly one of the bravest people I've ever met in my life. And mm-hmm. she is fearless when it comes to encouraging fearless journalism. And um, I've also had the privilege of being able to work with uh, a couple of the um, culture editors who work there. They're also absolutely outstanding people who uh, have never tried to... Um, you know, be too heavy handed with their editing. They've always been very encouraging of, um, not just, you know, the, the contributions I've been wanting to make, but just in general that the, the door is always open for people to contribute, um, quality work. So it's a very unique platform that has a very, both a very broad and a very singular kind of focus, which is just really good quality work. And, um, yeah, in my case, I, I just started working with them I think it was about four or five years ago, I just pitched something to the um, then culture editor, uh, Jennifer Evans, and she was incredibly supportive, really open to it. I worked with her, and then I've just stayed in touch with them over the years. And so um, the current culture editor uh, who who edited this piece that we're talking about right now, uh, Yasmin, she's uh, also an absolutely outstanding editor. And um, 
I, I can't, I, it's, I'm gushing, I'm gushing for a reason because, you know, it's, it's, it's a real privilege to be able to, uh, to work with them. Here, here. Maybe we can transition now into, um, we had this idea of maybe asking a few rapid fire questions. Oh, that no. Would... <laughs> no. I mean, it doesn't need to be super rapid. It's not like a psychological test. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about this part the most as soon as we're done with the interview. <laughs> this is the part that's going to haunt me. <laughs> But listen, take your time, take your time. I'll ask, the, I'll ask quickly, you can answer slow. <laughs> um, but this part is more just about like getting your feelings about being a writer and writing. Um, so, so we'll start. Okay. Do you like writing? No. <laughs> I don't. It's painful. I enjoy it when it's done. I really enjoy, you know, sending off that last draft. But no, I, it's not a pleasurable experience at all. <laughs> when do you write? Uh, sometime after midnight, mostly after midnight until like around 4 a.m. Oh, wow. Is that, um, is that because of necessity or that's when your brain is working in the right way? It's because my brain is in the right frame of mind literally yeah. so yeah it's something kind of clicks a little bit after midnight and it really is pretty persistent uh, consistent so huh um do you use a thesaurus yes okay how much do you delete or do you edit as you go or after you've written all the above <laughs> all of the okay. above it's a stop and go deleting whole paragraphs and it's it's a bit of a mess it's a bit of a yeah so you're at you're actively editing your editing yourself as you write. Yes. Wow. Okay. I mean, how do you get anything written? Um, persistence, I suppose. It's just I. It's just I write a lot, and then I don't really have a like a lot of volume to show for. But the stuff that right. remains is, yeah, that's the stuff that I end up working with. Hmm. Who do you write for? That's a good one. <laughs> I don't know. Mainly, I think it's because I feel that I have a thought or I have an emotion that I want to share and I have, and I happen to have language for it and language around it. And so that, that makes it possible to, to share this thought with whoever wants to engage with it. I feel like if I have a, an emotion about something that I just can't contain or just won't go away, that's the thing that I try to share through writing. Mm, that's a really nice way of putting it. I feel the same way mm. when you feel, you feel like it's kind of bubbling up and you just, you need, it's not enough to talk about it. It has to be somehow concretized. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Do you ever write under the influence? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you read or write in other languages? Uh, yeah, my uh, other mother tongue. I'm, I'm also Swiss, so I also read um, uh, German. Okay. But when you're thinking, are you thinking in English? Mostly. These days, okay. yeah, mostly, yeah. Where do you begin? Do you start at the start of the piece, or how do you know how to start a story? I normally start with metaphors. Um, I really tend to think in metaphors and a lot, uh, and colors, mm. and um, things that are around the thing that I actually want to say and I don't really get to the to the meat of the issue until much later so I try to kind of set a scene that 
um, that can contain the main thought that I'm trying to convey. So mm. it's I, I really often start with like a short story or a metaphor or something like that that mm. kind of contains the main issue. Can you tell? Do you remember what the kind of short story or metaphor was for this piece? I'm trying to remember. Um, because there are, I mean, there's a very evocative description of the boat. It's not the boat itself so much as what's going on around it. You know, like the the toilets and the Wi-Fi at the press room. Is that maybe that activity? It's a little bit more abstract than that. I think it was basically, I, as far as I recall, because it also it has been a while, but I, mm. I was really on edge um, because of the... Um, the Egyptian pavilion, I was really mm. pissed off at that. And I just felt that it was so like a, a, a form of violence that I just didn't really appreciate. And I just felt very burnt out about having to you know, engage with. And mm. then it kind of transferred over into this one. I thought that the, this boat project was a lot more aggressive and violent in that sense. I think one emotion kind of started at one place and then I got to the core of the issue with the the boat right. project. So why did you feel like the Egyptian pavilion that year was was a violence as you say? I mean, I think that the the way that space is being used in general is very violent. Um mm. it's I don't think that, you know, there's been a quality project happening in that space in that prime location in many years. Mm. And it's I don't think that it's being used in a way that does Egyptian art any kind of justice. Mm. And that really pisses me off because um, all of the projects, I mean, like they've been very um, self-orientalizing, catering to this very kitsch idea of what Egypt is and can be. I feel like there's a certain violence towards the potential of art in Mm -hmm. Egypt that's being actively and aggressively ignored. But, you know, the work itself, I I mean, I I think maybe it was a violation of, uh, you know, the audience basically to kind of subject to them, uh, subject them to this. You know, it was like, it was like a kitsch temple this year, like last year, it was like, I don't know, there was like kitsch uh, sphinxes and uh, it looked like some kind of Disneyland uh, ride or something. It was, Mm. it was kind of horrible. Do you find it easier to write when you're pissed off about something or when you're happy about something? Pissed off. Yeah, me yeah, too. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how do you know when a piece is done? Well, this is honestly my biggest weakness because I have so many texts that have they could have turned into short books, and I just abandoned <laughs> them because uh, you know oftentimes I draw the stories. I make like these. I have this like roll of paper, and I roll it out into the table, and I make like this mind map and. Sometimes the projects, they they grow and grow and grow, and then they don't stop growing, and then I just kind of give up because it's too elaborate. So I don't know. Sometimes they do have an end point, and sometimes um, they just grow out of proportion, and I have to abandon them at some point because I just can't really reel it back in. Yeah. Which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a drink with? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I don't know someone who likes to drink. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, someone who's a good drinker. I, I <laughs> Can we do we start perfect from answer. <laughs> what is the text you want to write but you know you won't? There's a lot of them. 
There's a lot of them. Um, is it maybe more connected to the position you find yourself in now in Cairo and the kind of concerns you were talking about before? Yeah, that it, you're absolutely right about that. Something that I talked to Madamas about, and they've also been very, very generous in terms of, you know, giving me, you know, free range over writing about this. But it's such a tricky thing where there's so many different people involved that I don't know. I can't, I feel like I, I will do something about this, hmm. but I don't know if I can tell the full story. Yeah. And that that's basically this text that I feel like I can't write to the full extent, which makes me backtrack and think, well, if I can't do it to the full extent, then I probably shouldn't do it at all. So mm. that might end up being the text that I'm not going to write because I can't tell the full story. Mm. Why do you want to write it? Because I feel like there's a certain truth there that doesn't only concern me. I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a big picture criticism or critique mm -hmm. of, of, of something that I wish would fundamentally change or be held accountable. Right. And the last question is, what is the pleasure of writing about art? I, mean, I think it's a fundamentally painful thing to, to do. I think it, I feel very exhausted after writing about art in particular. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel that there's a certain connection that happens, even if it's, um, this is a bit, it's a bit cliche to say this, it's a bit, but I think that there is kind of a dialogue happening there and including, you know, a public in that conversation or, you know, presenting a way of seeing things. I feel like it's kind of a, a, an act of generosity. I'd like to think of it as an act of generosity, um, to kind of expand the conversation, to expand, you know, the, the, the life of a, of a project. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, I think it, it, it's a tricky thing to do. I mean, each and every time I write something, I always ask myself, like, you know, why did I do that? Like, what? Because <laughs> not, not, not like in the sense of backtracking about what I said, but more in the sense of, you know, that took so much out of me. I don't know if I can ever do that again. And then I yeah. do. It's like, it's like the whole, yeah. like, I'm never going to drink again thing. And then you do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like just wait a few days and then, you know, you're, you'll be fine again. You know, it, it, but <laughs> it's one of those things, but it's, uh, yeah, I, w I wouldn't really call it a pleasure. It's, I, I like having had done it, but yeah. until it's, until you're at that point, I think it's a really, uh, it's a very um, demanding thing to do. Yeah. I like to ask at the end if there's anything when you receive the invitation, if there was anything you specifically wanted to talk about in relation to the piece. Like, was there something that I haven't covered that you want to make sure you say? I think with this specific piece, I feel that I can't really, you know, it got a lot of traction, but I can't really um, take a lot of credit for it in the sense of, you know, having come up with this you know, amazingly uh, refreshing or, you know, new take on something. I just feel that I had a very, I happen to be in a very privileged position in terms of being able to write about this. But I have a feeling that this was probably, you know, variations of this text was something that a lot of people probably would have wanted to write based yes. on some of the feedback that I got. So I mm -hmm. feel like I, I, I do appreciate the attention that it got for, you know, for my sake, but also for the sake of opening this conversation in, in, in that, you know, sharp 
way, which I think was very necessary. But I, I know that this is not a super original take on this. People were talking about it throughout the whole time I was in Venice. And I happened to be in a great position where I wasn't held back. And I also wasn't working for an institution at the time. So I also wasn't, you know, wasn't accountable. That's Uh, interesting. So I feel like I was in a very privileged position to be able to say these things because I had an amazing team backing me up and I didn't have to answer to anyone. But I know that a lot of people probably would have wanted to say something similar. I mean, yeah, I I hear what you're saying and I think that you're right. But at the same time, you said it and you said it publicly. And I don't think you need to sell yourself short about the exactly as you were saying about um, Madame Ass being dedicated to uh, bravery and publication. I think this is a brave piece. It's brave to say what everybody is saying behind their hand, you know? I appreciate that because I feel like that unfiltered energy kind of went out into the world and was received as such the way I Mm -hmm. hoped it would be by the public. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that, yes, that part I do appreciate and that part I will take credit for. I'm not, I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm (laughs) I'm not going to say, no, you know, I had nothing to do with this. No, Mm -hmm. I mean, like I did put myself on the line and it Mm -hmm. did feel very, I was very scared for, for a short while. I had no idea what was going to happen. I was, I didn't even want to you know, think about it when, when it first, um, when it was first published. But Hmm. I, I just feel like there is an element there where I, I kind of, you know, tapped into like a larger, you know, discourse or thought that was happening. Definitely. Can I ask what, because I, I feel this too, when I put something out in the world and a lot of writers we've been talking to also experience this feeling of, publishing something and then being really scared afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's real, yes. Specifically with this piece, what were you afraid of? I was afraid that I'd missed something. Mm-hmm. I was afraid that maybe um I had doubts um in terms of whether or not this had been too much of a knee-jerk reaction and I'd actually missed like a key element mm-hmm. that um that would redeem the whole project somehow? Maybe not the whole project, but just kind of like give it a little bit more nuance that I just yeah. had overlooked. And I, that part I was a little bit nervous about because I thought, well, you know, maybe because I didn't, you know, because I was a bit distracted thinking about the other pavilion and I was, I thought maybe I, I should have spent more time with this one. But I mean, I spent two days with the project. I, I did give it a lot of thought, but I thought, you know, maybe I'm just missing something and maybe, mm. you know, there's, there's a part there that you know, somebody's going to call me out on within the first 10 minutes of this going, uh, mm. going live. But so that was the thing that I was a little bit nervous about. I just thought for a second, well, well it can't be this simple. It can't be this <laughs> right. bad and this simple. It can't be so grotesque. It can't be. And isn't that the kind of gaslighting that goes on with these kinds of huge, like blockbuster projects? You're like, maybe I'm missing something. And it's like, no, this only goes so far. <laughs> yes. Moments the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, with assistant production from Mitra Shiram. This season's music is arranged by Ulysses Castellanos. We would like to thank Alexandra Stock for her contribution to this season, and a special thanks to all of those of you who are supporting the podcast. Mm-hmm. You can find us at patreon.com slash art or contact me about making a one-time contribution. Your support makes a crucial difference, and... I should also mention we never do this, which is a sign of just how far 
we have yet to go. But uh, <laughs> please, we're on social media. You can comment, you can review and share um, under Momus Art. <laughs> Is that compelling? <laughs> I mean, what do they say? That's what they say, rate and review. Well, yeah, but, you know, careful what you ask for kind of thing. So maybe just stay very silent and still, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> rate and review and fuck you if you don't like it. <laughs> we're, we're not making enough money to care. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> this has been episode 30 of Momus the Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs>